What's up everyone and welcome back to yet another episode of the Button Masher Chat Podcast. Uh, my name is Matt, also known as The Old Ronin, and I'll be your host for the next half an hour or so as we explore some of the hottest, 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 spiciest, muy caliente topics uh, in, in gaming at the moment. Which actually, no, we're not going to really talk too much about games uh, and what's going on right now. This episode is going to be uh, a slightly more personal retrospective on sort of my life in history in gaming. What got me into gaming. Uh, and I would really like to hear sort of everybody else's stories. What got you into gaming? Um, are you going to get your kids into gaming? Um, what sort of stuff would you like to see happen in the future? And uh, what do you have the sort of fondest memories of? But, before we get started, please show your support by giving this podcast a little feedback in the form of a review, a like, a subscription, depending on the podcast uh, sort of listening platform of your choice. Uh, Button Masher Chat is currently available on iTunes and SoundCloud. Button Masher Chat is a podcast in which I discuss some of the gaming's most relevant topics, current topics, and sort of just opinion uh, pieces that I have towards what is going on in the gaming community and gaming industry at the moment. And of course, remember that Button Master Chat isn't just a podcast. Search YouTube for Button Master Chat to find gameplay videos, opinion pieces, reviews, and more. If you're if you're into that sort of thing, uh, I'm also on Twitch. Uh, just search for The Old Ronin and you can find me there. So, uh, also, I used to push an Instagram page, which... A little update, I actually went through and deleted my Button Masher Chat Instagram page. My whole purpose with doing that uh, sort of Instagram page was to hopefully create a little bit more engagement with uh, like-minded people. And what I found out real quick was I found myself sort of comparing uh, myself to the gaming life gaming collections and things like that that other people had and uh it you know i did that page for a couple of months and then soon realized that it's just not very realistic and uh trying to keep up with other people i found myself doing and uh, you know constantly trying to put out content on on that page didn't seem as authentic Plus, the engagement level didn't really seem to be where I wanted it to be. Um, the discussions weren't really happening. And uh, I just didn't really feel like the whole platform of Instagram, uh, much like Facebook, was as uh, authentic, I guess, as, as I would hope that it would be have been. So, uh, I just deleted them. I, I just didn't even see the point anymore, uh, you know. It was fun. Uh, it, it was a cool sort of distraction and stuff like that. Um, I'm no less committed to uh, providing sort of my thoughts and talking about games and doing a little content here and there, whether it be on YouTube or uh, Twitter, uh, that sort of thing. Um, not that Twitter is any more authentic than flipping Instagram or Facebook or anything like that. Uh, but I do have a Twitter uh, that I operate uh, at the old Ronin. And if, like I said, you want to see me there, you can definitely see me there as well. But uh, what really sort of set this off was uh, at the beginning of the year, I noticed um, a lot of YouTube videos going up that were like game room tours. And I found myself over, uh, you know, I was out of town and I found myself 
sitting there watching YouTube and watching these sort of room tours of all of these people's uh, sort of man caves and lady caves and uh, she sheds maybe, uh, but game rooms and game collections and things like that. And I was like completely fascinated by uh, the approaches that some people have taken to set up and display their their game collections and their sort of pop culture memorabilia and how they had managed to, to store their games and go through and um, hook up, you know, 25 or 30 systems or 50 systems uh, at one time and just sort of everybody's different approach uh, was really interesting to me. And I work within a tiny space. I have a very small room. Uh, it was a second bedroom that I use as a as sort of a game room slash office. Uh, I'm currently in grad school, so I do my grad school work in here and all my reading and stuff in here for the most part. And I store the majority, the vast majority of my, my game collection uh, in here as well. And the same thing, you know, I mentioned about comparing myself to other... Uh, sites on Instagram and Facebook and whatever, uh, I found myself starting to do that too. I was drawing inspiration from some of these game room tours, like, oh, I could really do that, or, oh, I forgot that game was a thing, and, uh, you know, I should go ahead and pick that title up because it meant a lot to me as well, or it looks interesting. But I was also looking at these, some of these, not all of them, uh, and not passing judgment on anybody, but I was looking at some of these accounts uh, these YouTube accounts uh, and these people that were doing these game room tours, and I was just like, "Holy hell! Uh, how how can you afford that many games? How do you devote that much time to collecting thousands of games and you know hundreds of systems? You know, why do you own?" 10 PlayStation 2s and, uh, you know, 15 Game Boy Colors and, you know, 10 Nintendo 64s. And I understand some of that stuff. You know, you're a collector and you want the different colors and stuff like that. But why do you have, you know, four copies of, you know, Conker's Bad Fur Day for the Nintendo 64? And, you know, I, I understand that a lot of these collections come about through uh, a lot of bargaining uh, flea markets are always a good deal, yard sales, uh, trading, and things like that. And that's why you have duplicates. You want to trade away some stuff in order to get stuff that you don't have. I understand. But that's where I was coming from. I was looking at this, and I was just like, good God. I, uh, you know, I worked in games for up to f- almost 15 years. You know, I, I, I started off working at an arcade and managing an arcade in, in Aladdin's Castle. Did that for a few years. Uh left there, moved uh, to a smaller mom-and-pop game store, high-tech video games, uh, here in Greensboro, North Carolina. And uh, did that for a few years. And then me and a friend of mine opened up our own game store, which was called Game Spot. That was before Game Stops were all over the place, and really EB Games were everywhere, too. Um... That lasted for a few years, and then I did, uh, you know, quite a quite a long stint at uh, EB Games slash GameStop. So I had a pretty extensive, uh, you know, work history with games, and I collected stuff and traded stuff and sold stuff, uh, 
you know, through that whole time as well. But, you know, there were certain things that I, I held on to uh, my entire sort of gaming career. And even, and I, you know, I just went through and counted recently, and I've got just shy of 400 physical game titles and about 25 systems. And this all sort of came about because I was looking at these other videos. I started to reflect on it, and then I wanted to do sort of my own little game room tour as I learned how to better use YouTube and uh, edit videos and things like that. So that's what I did, and that's how I sort of counted and restructured all my my games and put them into an inventory and all that stuff. And I was just like, you know, comparing the two, what I've done to the outliers of these thousands and thousands of games collections, uh, I have nothing but respect uh, for the dedication those guys and girls have. Uh, it, it's just an unrealistic expectation to have uh, the finances and the resources that you need to, to keep, maintain, and just acquire a collection like that is out of control. Um, and these guys have found a way to do it. But if you're listening and you're interested in game collecting and things like that, which I'm sure you are, then, you know, I would say don't hold yourself to that, uh, standard. Um, so I went through and I, I created my game room tour, uh, for 2019 and I had a good, uh, a good amount of fun doing it. And, um, sort of it made me think of this sort of uh, retrospective of my own personal travels through gaming, which I'll get to uh, after I say this. Same thing I, to- I said in that video. If you're collecting games, um, collect what you like, collect what you enjoy, and really just kind of enjoy the ride. Um, stick within your finances. Don't make yourself... Don't go broke buying games. Uh, that's not going to put you in a good situation. That's not going to do anybody any good at all. Uh, make a budget, stick with that budget, and do things responsibly, whether it's through trade or whatever you're comfortable with, whatever you're financially comfortable with, and, um, yeah, just roll with it, man. I mean, that's what I'm doing now, and I'm still having a pretty good time with it. So, um, so anyway... Back to my own personal, uh, let's call it a gaming journey. A journey through space and time and a lot of time. I'm sitting at about, I'm 39. I'll be talking 40, 40 this year. Holy crap. So my first introduction to gaming really was the Atari 2600. Uh, I had a cousin give me one when I was about four, five, five or six, something like that, I guess. And... Had a stack of games with it, the typical Pac-Man and and Battle Tanks or, you know, the tank game or whatever it was. Uh, E.T., of course, and uh, Joust. And I thought Joust was the most amazing thing because it had the coolest sort of intro screen, you know. So I had that Atari 2600 and, and absolutely loved it uh, at a time when almost everybody around me was getting Nintendos, NES, Nintendo Entertainment Systems. So, of course, that was a big step up from the Atari 2600. So I begged and and pleaded with my parents to get me an NES for, I feel like it was my birthday, don't remember, but luckily enough, I had parents that were able to do that sort of thing for me, and I got my first NES and just loved it. I mean, absolutely loved it. For the majority of the time I had it, I played on 
an old black and green uh, computer monitor that I had it hooked up to. And then later I had a small black and white television that I had in my room that I was able to play on. And specifically, I remember playing Metroid and Mike Tyson's Punch-Out constantly. And I have this very clear memory of playing Metroid and getting to the, the end of the game, getting to Mother Brain, and having to go do a Christmas show at elementary school. And I had to leave, I had to pause the game and just leave the system on um, because I didn't want to give up my space uh, and where I was at. Uh, and, and basically leaving it on and doing that more than once, leaving it on for different games all night long because I didn't want to have to start all over again. Um, you know, but I, I, you know, I had, I was very fond of the, the NES as a system. And then of course, all the hype that came along with the Mario games, the Zelda games, um, a, a few random sort of role-playing games, which I, I wasn't quite into role-playing games at this point in time, but, um, you know, these sort of Zelda-like uh, adventure games uh, that were out as well, uh, and and just hard-as-hell Mega Man games and things like that. So I went through my NES, and then I had my NES until I was in middle school, and I think I was in middle school, sixth grade, I believe it was, uh, and I was just like, okay, it's time to upgrade. I need a Super Nintendo. I need to play Street Fighter 2 on my own terms at home. Uh, and that was my motivation. And I was a terrible student at the time. And my mother said, hey, if you turn your school stuff around uh, and you can get you know A's and B's and not be a little prick, then we can help you with that Super Nintendo. You got to save some money. You got to do good in school. And when the summer rolls around, that's what you got to do. And that was my motivation. I thought constantly, I had this picture in my mind of that summer, all I was going to do was play Street Fighter 2 on my own color television, which I eventually got. And I was going to constantly just play in my room Street Fighter 2, and it was going to be amazing. And that's what I did. I, I worked my little tail off. Uh, finally got my uh, my Super Nintendo and my copy of Street Fighter 2, and that summer was just nonstop me and the other kids that already had Super Nintendos. We were all playing Street Fighter. Uh, we were all not very good at it, but you know that was just constant with us. And you know, Super Metroid came out on Super Nintendo, and I remember constantly. Again, us. I remember I got it in the summer or a summer, not that same summer, but I got it, I used to play it in the Sears demo kiosk all the time. I would go into Sears and play Super Metroid uh, until the demo timed out or I had to leave. And I finally got Super Metroid and just played it like nonstop, uh, beat it on, got all the the different endings through the different time uh, restraints and discovered every little secret and just I felt like I didn't I remember specifically staying in a house playing that game and so much that I was actually cold from the air conditioner and then going back outside and the sun hitting me like a truck and it was just it was a it was a really good experience I have very fond memories of that as well and then originally well when the Mortal Kombat came out had Mortal Kombat series on the Super Nintendo. I never actually got into Genesis uh, at all. I had friends of mine that did, but a, di- a kid down the road had a, a Genesis, and I experienced that for the first time at his house. He lived about two houses down. So, uh, you know, at this time, I was also becoming more of a 
an arcade rat. I was take what I learned at home and, and then take it to the arcade. And then I would play games like Mortal Kombat 2 at the arcade. And all the kids at school would be discussing things. And there would be some kids that were selling the fatality and move lists and stuff. Um, but then the anticipation of Mortal Kombat 2 coming out on Super Nintendo and not being graphically neutered like it was on the uh, Mortal Kombat 1 was incredibly exciting. I remember going through every magazine that had Mortal Kombat in it, whether it was EGM or you know Nintendo Power or whatever was existing back then. Uh, so those are some of my fondest memories. And I still hadn't quite got into into the role-playing games yet. I had, had played Final Fantasy and stuff like that, but it didn't quite grab me uh, you know, like it did. And then I went for a long time without uh, playing games on a home console. Uh, and this is around the time I started playing more and more in the arcades. Uh, games like Tekken, Tekken 2, Tekken 3 uh, started to come out. Bloody Roar... Uh, Soul Edge, uh, Soul Blade later on, on consoles uh, were really sort of games that were grabbing my attention. And through the next few years, uh, that's really where I was at. Um, until I hit high school, high school, I got my first job, game-related job at the arcade. What did I do? I, I, I worked there basically so I could play more Tekken uh, 2 and Tekken 3. And uh, that worked out. Some of the guys there, um, you know, were had PlayStations. And this was a time where I really hadn't been invested much in home consoles. Uh, and my buddy got me tuned on to uh, Final Fantasy VII and the older Final Fantasy games. And then I'd gone back through and started playing some of those as well. But, uh, you know, I started to like the idea more and more of getting a... a, a PlayStation system, the original Sony system, and I did, uh, and I, I guess specifically got it for Tekken 2, uh, and, and then later Tekken 3, and I still didn't play it as much as I was in the arcade, but I had un, like an incredible access to an arcade, so uh, you know I just wasn't really playing as, as much as home. Uh, Street Fighter EX uh, plus Alpha was another one that stood out a lot to me on the original PlayStation and sort of gave me uh, that arcade, something I wasn't getting in the arcade. Um, and then Final Fantasy VII came out, I remember, and that game just completely engulfed me and really sort of spurred my renewed interest in uh, role-playing games. And that's a time where I went back through and retroactively played a lot of the uh, Final Fantasy games, uh, Lufia, Breath of Fire, stuff like that, and then paved forward with stuff on the original PlayStation. Uh, eventually, my my time in the arcade sort of came to a close. Arcades were coming to a close, um, but you know, when when a company and a business starts to go out of business, they they really start to do some weird stuff, and I wasn't happy there anymore, and. Uh, I had moved out of town to play or to work and to manage this arcade and decided I want to be a little bit closer to home. So uh, I moved back and I actually uh, almost immediately got a job in a small mom and pop store and they were a rental store, uh, the high tech games. And they, they rented games and they sold games and they, they took trade ins and all that fun stuff too. And I did this for a few years and really enjoyed it. And this was where 
my love for the original PlayStation really started to sort of bloom. Um, I had such access, and this is a theme, I had such access to games that I was able to play a little bit of everything and really sort of discover some quirky, unique stuff that I really just sort of fell in love with. Uh, weird games like uh, on the original PlayStation, like Irritating Stick, uh, Tecmo's Deception, uh, Monster Rancher. Uh, the original Monster Rancher was a huge game for me uh, in this time period. Um, a lot of the role-playing games, of course. Uh, some of the weirder fighting games. Um, you know, that really nothing comes to mind. Um, you know, the Street Fighter EX Plus Alpha 2, I remember, came out around that time. Um, some of those weirder uh, 3D games from Midway uh, came out like War Gods and stuff like that. Um, More Bloody War, I think, came out around this time on various systems. And then the Nintendo 64 came out as well. Which, funny story, I bought a Nintendo 64 actually before the PlayStation because I thought for sure that Nintendo was going to carry on with their dominance in the market. And I thought for sure that Tekken 3 or Tekken 2, or whatever it was, one of the Tekken games, I thought for sure would come out on Nintendo 64. And of course, that didn't happen, and that was a major reason that I sort of went over to uh, PlayStation Life, you know. But I had both. Uh, definitely got more use out of the PlayStation. Nintendo 64 had a couple of good games that I really enjoyed uh, during this time period. Uh, I mean, everybody played GoldenEye, obviously, uh, to death, but I also played uh, like Operation Winback. I remember being a a really good one. Uh, Beetle Adventure Racing is one of my favorite games on the Nintendo 64. And I'm sure there's others that I'm missing. Majora's Mask was a, you know, a really good game. And of course, all the Zelda stuff back through the history of Zelda well, was always a big deal. So we did that and, uh, you know, I, I had a really good time working there, was able to get some really sort of good skills under the belt, had a good time working with those people. I like that sort of feel of a, of a small uh, game store and really being able to talk to customers when they came in and give them very uh, customized recommendations uh, for games, you know, when they, they came in and say, hey, you know, I like, I like Metal Gear a lot. I love Metal Gear Solid, but, you know, I've beat it so many times, I wanted something a little bit different. Well, have you tried this Siphon Filter game? Because Siphon Filter, is a, it's a similar sort of concept. High spy uh, sort of stuff with a little bit more action. You know, this stuff like that is was something that faded away later on when I was at, at EB Games and stuff like that. But I did that for a little while. Like I said, worked there. Uh, played a lot of great games. Uh, that's where I discovered my, my love of the Lunar series when it was re-released on PlayStation 1. And eventually Lunar 2 as well. I definitely love those games. Um, Dreamcast launched at this time too. And uh, I worked the Dreamcast launched at this little store and it was fantastic. That was one of the best, my best days in gaming that I can ever remember. We had an import Dreamcast in the store and I remember playing it like all the time. And eventually sometimes we'd be able to take it home and it was so awesome to be able to uh, take this console home and have the sort of access to it again unfettered access that other people just didn't have um got my dreamcast absolutely loved it that's a 
you know, that's that's something that continued on until its demise. And still, I, I was just playing Dreamcast the other day. I played Dynamite Cop and Sega Bass Fishing and stuff. But moving on from there, from that small game store, uh, a buddy had another friend of mine who worked at a competitor that was also a small game store called Game Masters. And we eventually decided his, you know, he had... He was in a good opportunity, uh, you know, and had an offer presented to him to open up his uh, his own game store. And I got lucky enough to, to go in on it as well. And so we picked a town, a couple of, you know, a couple of towns over, picked a, uh, what we thought was going to be a good location uh, with future growth and stuff like that. And um, again, this was before EB Games and a lot of the sort of bigger chain game stores uh, were really sort of making their way into into town like they are now, and before even Walmart was taking game sales seriously and stuff. So we thought we had a pretty good shot at it. Uh, so we opened up GameSpot, and it was modeled very closely off of uh, some of the smaller mom-and-pop game, st- game stores we were working at uh, before. And... Started off small and, and was able to grow and expand. Uh, we, we gave ourselves room to do that. Um, I remember we, we went and got these giant uh, Toshiba big screen television. Uh, you know, it's projection screen because this is, you know, before flat screens, before LCDs and plasmas and stuff like that. So we did that and we, we had a couple of other, other tube televisions set up and so we had, you know, this sort of setup, almost like an arcade. And um, you could come in there and you could play games and then you could rent games and trade games. And uh, we did that through the 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 demise of the Dreamcast, um, the, the launch of the PlayStation 2 and the GameCube and the original Xbox. And it was a really good time. It was really busy. It was really stressful. And... The store itself never really did all that great. Um, it, we stuck around for a few years, and and definitely we moved locations to what we thought would be a better location. Um, but by that time, EB Games and stuff like that was coming in. Everybody had expanded their game store uh, or their game selection, like Best Buy and Walmart and things. And uh, it was just not a very good time to have a small independent game store, no matter how great the customer service was. So, uh, but it, during this time period, during this this GameSpot um, time period, we, you know, I, there's a couple of games that stand out. A lot of Dreamcast stuff. Uh, Fantasy Star Online was a huge deal for us. We played it all the time, over the internet even. Um, even when I was home, I could play with the internet, through the internet, with people at the store. Um, C-Man launched uh, at this time. And I, you know, I played that. There were still some PlayStation one games. I feel like that were coming out at the time. Uh, Marvel versus Capcom two, all the fighting games were such a big deal in our store. Uh, tech and tag tournament was a, was a huge deal. Um, any sort of fighting game was always a big deal. And with the dreamcast, especially, I remember that being, uh, you know, something that was always happening within the store. And in this time, uh, I decided, you know what? I got my own game store now. I am going to go to an E3 show, an Electronics uh, Entertainment Expo. Uh, this is where all the game stuff was happening. Um, 
this is where all the news came out once a year. It was a huge deal. And you had to be part of the industry to get in. And um, so you had to have credentials. You had to have some sort of credentials. Uh, so I think what we did was, you know, we I, I photocopied uh, our business license, I think, and filled out the application along with a, a business card and maybe some other documentation, sent it in, got accepted, passed. So I'm good to go. I got passes. Got a hotel room. Uh, we actually snuck a buddy of in. Uh, we in, made up a, a fake business card with a friend of mine on it, and uh, you know we got him accepted into uh, the E3 as well. And that was E3 2001. So this is the first glimpse at the Nintendo GameCube and the original Xbox. Um, and I bought a video camera and all this uh, equipment. I was ready to go. I was going to take footage and. And, and really sort of make a demo that we, I could come back and really put my store uh, above everybody else, have some great video, uh, some great experiences to talk about, and sort of set my store apart from everybody else's store. And that's what I did. Um, and we made it, and we went to all three or four days of that show, and it was fantastic. I think I lost 10 pounds walking around that, that, that space. And I remember this is my first place where I got to play the original Halo. And I remember when I got back, I was like, this flipping Halo game is going to change things. Uh, and I didn't even play first-person shooters that much at the time. And, I, you know, I came back and told everybody that walked in that store and my business partner and everybody else that this game Halo is going to change things for real. Uh, I got to tell everybody about the, the sort of GameCube controller. I got to play Luigi's Mansion um, and, you know, some of the other games that came out alongside GameCube. Uh, back then, it was all about... It, E3 was a little bit, like, raunchier back then because it was all about booth babes. Um, you know, every every company had their... Uh, what they were showing off. I remember Tecmo specifically was showing off the Dead or Alive game for the Xbox. Um, Dead or Alive 3. And, you know, so they hired these really attractive girls and they put them in these really tiny outfits and uh you know you go up there you wait in line you go up there you take pictures with them and while you're waiting in line they're showing you all sorts of game footage on these big screens and that was sort of a, a something that was commonplace back then that probably for the better that does not uh, happen as much today at these e3s um but you know sex sales back then you know and it, it's it's an approach that the industry took and there was also a lot more partying and stuff like that, I think, uh, back then. As it was still, you know, in gaming was a thing, but it was still growing. It was not anywhere. You t you look back in 2001, the games industry was not near as uh, robust as it is now, you know. Um, so back then, there was a level of, um, I don't know, uh, I hate to call it fun. I mean, a lot of it was fun, but, you know, you can debate the you know, the use of booth babes and things like that, uh, especially. But there was definitely a different vibe to E3s back then. So, uh, actually, I remember specifically uh, meeting a, a, a good friend of mine. Uh, her name is Candice Keita, and she was uh, playing Lei Fang in the, the E3 booth, and um, uh, at the Tecmo booth, the Dead or Alive booth. And uh, I uh, I met her... 
And of course, I mean, you remember her. She was like, they were all, all these girls were like beyond, you know, smoking hot. And I was in my early 20s at the time. And, you know, that, that was you know, just something I paid attention to. Um, but I actually found, I came across her in a, in a auto tune magazine or a you know, auto tuner, import tuner magazine, I think it was. And, uh, I actually emailed her and, uh, you know, was asking her questions about the show and stuff like that. And we actually started going back and forth and we worked on several projects together, uh, for her marketing and, and, and building her up and things like that. And, you know, we, uh, became pretty, pretty close friends. And, uh, you know, that was, that was something really good that came out of the E3 as well. But back to the, the E3 show, went through, took a bunch of pictures and took a bunch of video, played Xbox, played GameCube before anybody else came back and, and really just sort of, uh, thought it was an amazing experience. Uh, saw Eco for the first time there. And, you know, I was able to come back and share this with all my, you know, all the customers that were coming in and it was super cool, man. Like it really was. And I felt like hot shit at the time, too. I really felt awesome. Um, then um, things started to slow, and I actually had to leave, and I actually went to... Uh, uh, I had to pull out of the business, and and when we moved, and I had to go work for another uh, company. It was another retail place called... Well... They're still in business, so I'm not going to mention them. But, uh, you know, I worked for another place who was actually trying to... They sold music and movies and things like that, but they were also trying to expand their game uh, game business as well. I sort of got put in charge with that as an assistant manager, uh, later a manager at the store. I did that for a couple of years and then uh, ended up getting a, a, a gig over at uh, EB Games, and that was... EB Games was a while. I was there for a long time. Uh, saw the conversion to the to the GameStop brand, and through this time, again, that access, I was able to play, you know, so many PS2 games that I wouldn't normally have played uh, because they're just too they were too expensive. Fatal Frame uh, was specifically one of those. Um, I also went to another E3 at this time, not under the EB Games banner, but actually under my old uh, GameSpot banner. Uh, sort of went back. I only went to the show a couple of days, and then I messed around, punched around L.A. a little bit as well. And uh, But I got to go see my friend. Uh, I got, got to meet some more people, see some more games. Sudeki, uh, I remember on Xbox, uh, is what a friend of mine was sort of promoting at the time. And, uh, you know, just got to add another E3 to my to my resume. And then... Uh, came back, shared what I found out with people, and uh, continued working at uh, EB Games GameStop for for quite a while, and that was my whole thing. And in this, you know, during this time, you know, we saw the launch of the PlayStation Three and the Xbox Three Hundred and Sixty and the 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 Nintendo Wii, and um, you know, the you know the Zune. I remember specifically coming out when I was at uh, EB Games. And, you know, being able to work at these places just allowed me to experience and get my hands on so many different things. You know, I I was able to, to, to buy a Atari Jaguar and experience it for relatively cheap before I eventually got rid of it because it was a terrible system and there's no games worth playing on it. Um, you know, I was able to experience the the engage uh or not the engage yeah the engage again not worth really owning I, in my opinion but 
you know, it's it's out there. Um, the Neo Geo Pocket Color, which is uh, one of my favorite handheld systems, uh, you know, that was something that I probably wouldn't have tried if I didn't have, you know, access to it, if I wasn't at uh, one of these game stores or game businesses. And I also got to recognize sort of how game companies work and speak to the, the PlayStation rep and the Sony, uh, you know, PlayStation rep, the Xbox rep, which was, the Xbox had a weird approach to representation, but in retail stores, uh, but the Nintendo rep and sort of get a better idea how these companies work and what they're, what they're doing next and how their visions uh, are laid out and things like that. So it was a super valuable uh, experience that whole time in the game industry, uh, even if it was on the retail side and a lot of people wouldn't consider that the games industry. But, um, you know, basically during this time, I bought every system that came out. Um, you know, I did more trading and, you know, probably was not as fiscally responsible with my game collecting back then uh, because I would have good stuff, just play it, trade it in, get new stuff, and that cycle would go, and I didn't really hang on to stuff. It wasn't until uh, I left gaming, uh, working in game retail completely, and, uh, you know, that's when I slowly started to get back into the the picking up games, uh, but I didn't really buy them as much as I would when I eventually joined the army. When I joined the army, I had a little bit more disposable income and I was playing mostly current gen stuff. I wasn't focusing too much on retro collecting or anything like that. And, uh, it was this time I just decided that I wasn't going to, uh, get rid of anything. Uh, so it just didn't seem worth it. And when GameStop was the only sort of business on the market and you know, the, the trading in just wasn't a good value. Like it, it was at one time a lot better value than, um, it currently is now, but, um, you know, it was, it, it was a good time. And, you know, through all this time working at GameStop and smaller places and arcades and, you know, whatever it might be, I am grateful that I've been able to sort of experience the, the knowledge, the detail, the gameplay, and, and some of the stuff that, you know, other people just will never, um, be able to sort of experience whether it's great customers coming in, being able to have, uh, that sort of great conversation or whether it's just being able to sit down and play a game that nobody else is really paying much attention to. Like a game like front mission three, when it came out, nobody was paying attention to that game, but, uh, I fell in love with it because it's a fantastic game. Uh, the original arc, the lad, uh, uh, on PS2, I can't remember what the subtitle of that game is. That's another one that uh, I was able to play, experience, and really push to other people because it was a fantastic little game that nobody was paying attention to. But this is where my sort of love of uh, just talking about games uh, with other people and sharing my knowledge and sharing thoughts and just having a very engaging discussion about a topic that I'm passionate about, uh, and that's just the games industry and video games as uh, as a whole. Um, whether it's collecting or whether it's uh, philosophical debate on whether or not video games are art, um, whether it's business decisions that are being made, uh, you know, ups and downs. Uh, you know, I find it all very intriguing and very interesting. And, uh, you know, I love being able to find like-minded people uh, to talk about it with. So, uh, you know, it's all good times, you know. And as I look back now and I, I think about my fondest memories you know, I 
you know, over my whole time in playing any sort of games, I would say my fondest memories, probably uh, beating Mike Tyson in Mike Tyson's Punch-Out. I beat him one time, and it went to a decision, and I was completely thrilled with that. And nobody was around to witness it, uh, so you just have to take my word for it. But I would not lie about such a thing. I took that game very seriously. Um, Working in an arcade... Uh, experiencing that was another highlight. Getting Tekken 3, playing Tekken 3 at home uh, for the first time was was such a huge deal. Same goes with Street Fighter 2 uh, as well, and Mortal Kombat 2. You know, that series of fighting games, being able to experience that near arcade quality in, in my own bedroom, in my own living room, uh, was definitely a, a, a highlight. Playing the Lunar Games was a highlight. Something I'll never forget. Final Fantasy VII. Something I'll never forget. Uh, opening our own store was such a, a gratifying experience that, you know, I still have friends to this day that came into that store all the time. And it was, even though it didn't work out in the long run, uh, it was a fantastic experience that allowed me to go to like E3s. And they, the two E3s that I went to were such a, a remarkable experience. Uh, you know, being able to go to something like that uh, back then was just incredibly rewarding and, you know, kind of exclusive. So, you know, it felt really good. And it gave me, all of this gave me legs to stand on when it comes to talking about games and talking about sort of that local business and mom and pop stores. And um, I saw the sort of downside of, of video games slumps in the industry, but I've seen a resurgence in, uh, especially like retro gaming and, uh, retro collecting, uh, which sort of touches back to my earlier topic that, you know, is, is really great. It's fantastic. It's almost too good. Uh, you know, you start to see some of the, the prices on some of these games that aren't even very good start to sort of skyrocket. And, uh, you start to wonder, well, uh, I love that everybody is into retro gaming now and stuff like that, but at what cost, uh, you know, collectors are buying up everything and, you know, in five or 10 years, what's going to happen, uh, you know, are younger generations even going to be able to afford to play, you know, some of these, uh, some of these more obscure games and stuff because of, um, the sort of collector's mindset, but who knows? It's all in a good spot right now. I don't know about, I don't know about bigger games these days. Um, I, I feel like the game industry now is a lot like the sort of movie industry and the fact that th- there's just too much. There's great indie stuff coming out. There's there's great smaller developers and stuff, but it's so hard for those guys to like survive. They put out a game, it's got to be a hit. It's got to be a hit for them or, in order to survive. And then you have larger companies like EA who have the most lucrative franchise in the world uh, in Star Wars and and they can't get a game out successfully, you know? I mean, uh, they just canceled, you know, one of their their big open world Star Wars project, uh, just canceled it. You know, both the Battlefront, Star Wars Battlefront games have been, you know, tragic and they've canceled other games and uh, shuttered studios and it's, it's just been a train wreck. How do you mess up star Wars as a game? I don't know. So, um, it's weird. I feel like there's less diversity in gaming now and, and the process of making games is so expensive. 
you know, when you when you compare it to, you know, a PlayStation 2 generation or PlayStation 1 generation, uh, the difference is just night and day. But at the same time, one could say a lot more quality goes into these games, uh, you know, as opposed to when PlayStation 2 was out. You know, you, you own 800 PlayStation 2 titles. That's fantastic. Uh, but you probably own about, uh, you know, 700 crappy PlayStation 2 games along with that, you know. Um, so, but, you know, I'm happy. I'm happy the game community is thriving. I'm glad that there's so many people interested in it. Uh, and as somebody who sort of grew up in it, around it, uh, experiencing it on, you know, a couple of different ways, a couple of different areas, and viewpoints. Uh, it makes me really happy that everything is is going well. So, I uh, I think I've rambled on for about forty five minutes now. So, if you have made it to the end, uh, I really appreciate you tuning in uh, to this. Whether you're watching it on YouTube, which is fantastic, or if you've downloaded it on on uh, iTunes or playing on SoundCloud, that's also uh, great. I'm just glad you're here, and I'm glad what we can experience this sort of thing together. If you're checking us out on YouTube, uh, feel free to subscribe, uh, like, and especially comment down below more than anything else, like a little feedback and sort of what are your thoughts uh, on on sort of your life in gaming and, and what you've experienced. And uh, if you've got any questions or anything like that, feel free to ask. I love to talk and uh, I love to talk with people. And if you're checking us out on iTunes or SoundCloud or anything like that, like I said, feel free to give me a like. Uh, or subscribe, and uh, if not, you know, if you don't like what you're listening to, then tell me why. Give me a little bit of feedback. I love that sort of thing, and hopefully that I can uh, improve things in the future, but I think I am going to wrap this up now. Uh, it's just been kind of a, just a long, rambly podcast, but I appreciate you uh, sticking with me, and hopefully you've you've had a good time and learned something, and we're going to call it quits for now. Until next time, Thank you for turning it, tuning in to Button Master Chat. Uh, you can look me up on Twitch, uh, my own personal individual at the Old Ronin on Twitch, Twitter uh, the Old Ronin, and then YouTube. Just search Button Master Chat for all sorts of past live stream content, uh, some reviews, uh, commentary, a game room tour of 2019. So I hope everybody has a fantastic day, a fantastic week, and I hope you all take care. We'll talk to you later. See you next time. Peace out, everybody.